the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us now praise famous men, men of little showing, for their work continueth, and their work continueth, broad and deep continueth, greater than their knowing. Quotation there from Rudyard Kipling's poem, A School Song, which is found in his novel about school life, uh, Stocky and Co. Who's Kipling talking about? He's taking the famous phrase from the book of Sirach, uh, let us now praise famous men and our fathers and their generations, and he's adapting it to something else. Who's he talking about there? He was a great fan of the British Empire, and he's talking about people he saw as absolutely essential to that vast project, whether you agree with it or not. People he saw as absolutely essential, if you read the whole poem, to the kind of people who would lead that project and conduct it and direct it and, and preserve it. He's not talking about great civil servants. He's not talking about great politicians, bankers or businessmen. No, no, no. Men of little showing. He makes the point there. These are people who don't make a big splash in the world. So who's he talking about? He's talking about his teachers. Let us now praise famous men. And aren't they famous? I mean, every one of you listening to me, no matter what your age, I bet you can list off a lot of your teachers. And the ones that will stick in your mind most are the best and the worst, for better or worse. But they're with you to the day you die. So when we talk about teachers, really, I mean, I was talking the last day about O'Crehon and Unberts, the two, the two, the parents who are your first teachers, your first school, your first court, your first government, your first church. But the teachers are in loco parentis, in the place of the parent. Legally, morally, spiritually, they are an extension of parenthood. Teaching is essentially parental. This is the great problem with teachers becoming civil servants or teachers becoming corporate employees. It's the great problem with trying to fill the teaching profession full of people who are in the business of teaching, who are in the teaching business. You need a school staff full of teachers, not people simply who are in the teaching business. The second may be efficient, but the first will change lives. Now, God help the principal who has to lead a school full of teachers who have vocation for it, they are the most individual, the most erratic, the most eccentric, the most impossible people. But blessed is your son or daughter if they meet a few of them in their time. These are the great teachers. I had a background in education and I suppose when I talk about education, my mind is drawn straight away to a figure who's just huge, really, controversially, for better or worse, justifiably or unjustifiably, but his myth, let's say, is huge in the history of teaching in these islands. And remember, our education system is heavily one we inherited from the British and is heavily influenced by the British, to this day, by the British system. And that is, of course, the great headmaster of rugby, Thomas Arnold, known as the Doctor. Dr. Arnold. Anglican clergyman, good friend to Ireland, stern, muscular Christian, morally stern, Arnold was a legendary headmaster. He was frequently in the London Times, frequently in the papers. The papers were frequently attacking him for his expulsions and he was an enthusiastic, I'm sorry to say, flogger. Arnold would reach for the stick very handily. But that was the T 
teaching of the time. Thomas Arnold became almost the face of the British educational system. He's very much regarded as kind of the father of the English public school system, the schools that were originally charitable institutions that rose to become the great elite boarding schools of the country, rugby being one of them. Arnold was stern. I mean, there are any number of stories about him. He was greatly feared. He was regarded with absolute awe. He was constantly in the school, to the extent that when he wasn't there, students were expecting to meet him around every corner. He dominated school life totally. Arnold had the idea that adolescence was useless. It was nothing but an opportunity for endless sin and debauchery of every kind. And the simplest way of dealing with it was that you gave the student responsibility. In other words, that you, you let him become a man very quickly. As far as I understand, it pretty much made the whole senior year into, as they were called, preposters, the prefects, and gave them huge authority, as his hostile critic Lytton Strachey termed it, and there should be judges in Israel. He gave huge authority to these prefects. Tom Brown's School Days, the famous Victorian novel, is based on Arnold's rugby. And I remember as a boy seeing a a BBC televised series of it and being absolutely shocked at the floggings at the merciless beatings which were routinely a part of of school life at the time in Britain and in Ireland. He was famous for giving responsibility to students. He was famous for the respect in which he held the word of senior students. A sixth former who was accused of something, Arnold would simply ask him, had he indeed done it? If the boy said he had not, Arnold would go to court on that word. But God and his angels spread their mercy over you if it turned out that you had misled him there would be no mercy. He once expelled a boy in the middle of a storm around midnight, called a carriage in the middle of the storm, put him in it and sent him off. And the boy had to put up in a tavern in the town. That got to the London Times. If you lied to him, you were done. I have to say that with reservations, I I would admire Arnold tremendously. I I think we, we, we could all be inspired by his example. I worry that in our teaching system now, in our educational system now, we are operating what Porrick Pierce, himself a great headmaster, what Pierce called the murder machine. And that we're just turning the handle and trying to crank out a whole load of stodgy little citizens. And I worry terribly about Catholic education. And the enemies of Catholic education are subtle. Everyone thinks it's all its secularism and and the secularism, is the problems will be very obvious. You know, you'll have to be more careful what you teach in religion class and you start teaching other religions and all the rest. You could list them off yourself. Actually, the biggest problem in a Catholic school isn't that. The biggest problem in a Catholic school is the point system. The biggest problem in a Catholic school is that Catholic schools generally are good. They come to believe their own myth, which has to be fed by endless high achievement in the exams every year. And before you know it, you're running a superficially Catholic school that's really a grind school. And it's really an institution for filling the universities and serving the administrative industrial complex. And that's what you're doing. You're turning the the crank and you're turning out whichever version of a stodgy little citizen is now required a hundred years later. Some people may be put out to hear me, hear me say this, but I honestly think this needs thought. I have heard people, I've heard priests, I have heard devout Catholics from as far away as Australia, worry about this in Catholic education. They see people who aren't remotely Catholic doing anything to get their kids into Catholic schools simply because the schools can be relied on to get them excellent results. 
is that necessarily Catholic? Is it good that some Catholic schools would be so expensive to get into that perhaps a devoutly Catholic family couldn't afford it? Shouldn't Catholic schools be educating people for eternity? And here I have a great story to tell you. It was told to me by a fellow teacher years ago who had been taught in turn by Cardinal Basil Hume when he was a housemaster at Ampleforth, the famous Catholic public school in, in England. And the story is told that the uh, headmaster of Ampleforth was for the first time invited to the prestigious the Headmasters Association to their annual conference. And at the end of it, it was suggested that everybody in the room, uh, all of them headmasters, that they would say in one word what they were preparing their children for. And it went around the room and it was predictable and very fine. Duty, service. This was during the empire when there was an empire and there were, career, you know, there were many careers in administration. All the rest of it. All the way, fa- family life, all the way, all, all around the thing. The headmaster of, of Ampleforth is supposed to have stood up and said he was a monk, death, and sat down. Isn't that what we are preparing them for? If my life had gone differently and I had a son or a daughter, I would expect that the Catholic school I would send them to would help prepare them for their death, by which I mean that it would help to prepare them for their life. Because you can't do one without the other. If you don't consider your death, you won't respect your life. You'll be like an Egypt who's inherited a fortune and doesn't know how to deal with it. He won't have the money for long. Every pub in town will have his money. No, no, no. We are supposed to be preparing them for their death, by which we mean their life, for living a good life, to know, love and serve God in this life and be with them forever in the next, even if they fail the leaving cert doing it. But I know myself from having run a school, I know the terror of the, the point system every year. I know the, the, the league tables, everything schools are afraid of them. I wonder whether we have the, the courage. I wonder whether we have the faith to run Catholic schools anymore. I wonder whether we have the faith to turn out the kind of exceptional teachers you need to run a Catholic school. Because a teacher in any Christian school, and particularly and specifically in a Catholic school, is a living rule. The teacher is like the old Benedictine abbesses. If the rule was lost, you watch the abbess for a year and you could recreate the rule. You could write it all down. The teacher must be a lesson in the faith. Not perfect, but a lesson. Faith, is, as the saying has it, it's caught, not taught. And actually that's true of, of all the other subjects being taught in the school. I know it from experience because I have known in schools where the most unlikely subjects end up with a cult around them with people breaking to get into those classes because of one dedicated, inspirational, charismatic, highly competent teacher who turns their subject into an experience and can deliver on the results if you have the talent to do it. And so today I am making a plea for a reconsideration of Catholic education and a reconsideration of that incredible profession which is crucial and which is so badly paid in some countries and so little respected which is absolutely crucial to the function of a, of a healthy society, which is the teaching profession. It should be hard to get into, easy to get out of. It should demand high qualifications, but above all, it should demand a profound aptitude for spiritual as well as intellectual leadership. And for intellectual leadership. Like I would ask the question, how, you know, certainly how many priests keep reading? How many teachers keep reading? You'll have teachers who are absolutely superb. Their classes get top results every year, but the teacher hasn't read anything past that for years. I'm not saying that to dig at anybody. I mean, the priesthood is the same. It's a huge problem. 
If you're delivering the goods in the parish, people are happy. And the pre- he, he stops reading. It's disastrous because study is a, is a crucial part of the priesthood and study is a crucial part of the teaching profession. And actually, I would say that for much of our history in the church from the time of Benedict on, study and teaching are a crucial part of the popular understanding of the priesthood. Many priests were teachers, and properly so, because the great Jewish religion from which we received our faith, because our Lord Jesus Christ is a Jew, is a Jew, as I once saw in old footage, St. Jose Maria Escriva of Opus Dei said that, and he dwelt on the grammar. He is a Jew. The rabbis are arguably inherited the mantle of the Pharisees. The rabbis are, are, are teachers and great students of the Torah. The priest should be a learned man, insofar as he can be. I mean, I'm, I'm not the brightest spark, I never was. But insofar as he can be, he should be a student and a learner. And so the teacher. The teacher should never stop learning. You learn from the books, you learn from your students. And yes, you do learn from your students. That's not a load of trite nonsense. I know you do. Any teacher will tell you that you do. You do learn from your students. Teaching in a Catholic school is a great conversation. It's a tremendous interaction. And the meeting of teacher and student, as Newman makes this point, uh, he was very interested in that because Newman himself said, from first to last, education has always been my line. Newman said that, 1863. From first to last, education has always been my line. He was in that line of work. We need inspiring and inspired young people to come into the teaching profession in Catholic schools. We need people whose example and teaching will be spiritual as well as intellectual. And what you are desperately trying to teach in just a few years will be what will last a lifetime. And indeed, Kipling makes that point. For their work continueth and their work continueth, broad and deep continueth, greater than their knowing. I could never believe how things you had said that you had long forgotten would be remembered by students 10, 20 years later. And they'd be able to quote them back to you. And one child psychologist I was talking to, she was talking about the teaching profession and she just shook her head. The power of that position, she said, for good or bad. And she'd seen both in her, in her clinical work. The power of that position. And ironically, I found that as a, as a principal, if you weren't loaded down with a whole load of other concerns, it's an unparalleled chance to do pastoral work in the school because of the sheer prestige of the principal's position. Somebody's principal is a big person in their lives. A big person in your student's life, even if they pretend you're not, even if they've no interest in school or pretend they haven't. You're a major figure in their lives. But every poor principal in the country is racing around like a headless chicken trying to cover any number of different jobs. No, 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 we need, we need teachers of the best aptitude and quality led by principals who have the time to spend with people. And our educational system should be calibrated in that way to provide for that. I go back to Kipling. Wherefore praise we famous men from whose bays we borrow. They that put aside today all the joys of their today and with toil of their today bought for us tomorrow. Teachers sank their lives into the lives of their students. Not simply as compost. This was willingly, knowingly, intentionally done by intelligent men and women. Their lives sank into the lives of their students that the next generation might live. What a noble calling. What a magnificent calling. 
teaching is absolutely central to Catholicism. The church, we call the church mater et magistra, mother and teacher. And if we're, not te- if we're not teaching, we're not being church. We call the teaching of the church the magisterium, the teaching authority. It's always been there for us. I mean, our Lord Jesus Christ is called, as far as I understand it, you can correct me on this, he's called teacher more than he's called anything else. In fact, it's impossible to understand him unless you understand that. This is the teacher par excellence. This is the teacher whose life is not just an excellent, as in the case of a saint, but the perfect lesson. This is the teacher whose life is subsumed entirely into the lives of his students. Just consider the utterly disproportionate amount of time out of three years of a public ministry that he seems to have spent with those 12. He knew what he was doing. He was raising teachers. Takes a lot of time. If we're true to him, if we're serving him, we're chips off the old block. We, we need to be teachers like him. A fantastic symbol is the symbol for the Christian brothers. And the history of the Christian brothers is complex. I'll admit that straight away. The Christian brothers admitted there's darkness and light. But my goodness, the tremendous achievement. And of course, the brothers were an Irish version. They were the Christian brothers of Ireland. They were an Irish version of the, the De La Salle brothers, which already exist, existed in France. And the symbol at one stage of the De La Salle brothers was the star, and the Christian brothers adopted that for their symbol. And the star was, was there in their crest, it was on the front of all their schools, it was even on their copybooks and their textbooks, because they produced their own copybooks and textbooks. This amazing order. And the star is a symbol taken from Daniel 12.3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who instruct many in righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What an amazing symbol. The star, the symbol of the teaching profession, of the teacher. The teacher who casts light. The teacher by whom you may plot your voyage. Now here, here's the point, and th- this is absolutely crucial. And of course it's very, it's very controversial in terms of labour law and all the rest of it. But again I have to say it. There should be no such thing in a Catholic school as an English teacher or a French teacher or an economics teacher or an accounting teacher. Simply, simpliciter, just like that. There's no such thing. You have teachers who teach those subjects on top of preparing the students for life. A teacher in a Catholic school is primarily a spiritual leader. They may not think of themselves like that, but that's what they are. They're spiritual leaders. And they need to get back their mojo. They need to rediscover again the true greatness of their calling there. I don't know what you do to discover this. I'm thinking Tommy Tiernan on this. What do you do? You strip naked and run through the bog at midnight, the full moon? I don't know what you do to get back to your true teaching spirit there. But, I mean, we need to rediscover it. We've lost our courage. We're afraid to witness to the master. And we're afraid to witness to an incredible tradition. We taught Europe. Where would we be without the Jews? And where would Europe be without us? Ourselves and the Jews. And truth to tell, we haven't always treated each other very well and it was often us against them. But we've both lasted. We're both still here after thousands of years. God is intent on humanity. God has a plan for the human race. God is in love with humanity. And a great teacher will somehow, however obliquely, however indirectly, cause a student to discover that and to discover how precious they are, how precious their life is.
I love that quotation from Numa. He was famous for, for using down-to-earth English in his tutorials. From first to last, education has always been my line. Like a man selling shoes. And I think he knew man, my God. <laughs> Poor Newman. I think he knew man. He who had such an appetite for the inside, for belonging, who had such a need for love, I suspect, for friendship, a tremendous capacity for friendship. And he, he was called to the outside so much to leave everything that he'd been brought up with and loved to become a Catholic in a land where Catholicism had become something foreign and suspect. And then to end up wandering Ireland, trying to convince the Irish bishops to back the Catholic university. And apparently he liked Ireland, he liked the Irish, but he, he found our houses very drafty. And the Irish priests, a lot of them have been trained on the continent and they felt that it was the essence of sophistication to serve meat up rare, which he found disgusting. So his trip to Ireland was full of freezing, drafty bedrooms and raw mutton. <laughs> he had a tough time. Lytton Strachey, again, the 20th century English wit. And he wasn't in some ways the nicest of men, Strachey, very acerbic wit. But he, he has a, a famous book called Eminent Victorians in which he did a debunking exercise on four famous Victorians. General Gordon, uh, Florence Nightingale, Thomas Arnold was another of them and Newman was another. But he's particularly negative on Newman. He's very, he's quite anti-Catholic, anti uh, Strachey. And he, 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 but he's this very amusing image of poor Newman jaunting around the Irish countryside in the company of extraordinary ecclesiastics and barbarous squireens. <laughs> and indeed, you could think of Flurry Knox from the Irish RM. I mean, Ireland probably was lively enough. All right. He came to Tume. He came to Tume, I think, on the train to try to, as he put it, to beard the lion in his den. John McHale, the famous Archbishop of Tume, was known as the Lion of Tume or the Lion of the West. And he said, I will beard the lion in his den. He went, come on, try to get Mikhail on his side. But he found Tume uh, rough. Let's put it that way. I don't think his, he didn't take a complimentary view of it. And I, I think Newman is just a fantastic example to us of, of that teaching and education, that gentleness that should be in Catholic education, that endless patience that should be a part of education. But above all, that inspiration that divine enthusiasm. And enthusiasm in the original Greek understanding of it, I think, was always regarded as being divinely inspired. It's a sort of a catching mania. And uh, keep in mind that Newman was found in the Catholic University in Ireland only a few years after the famine. It was absolutely crazy if you think of it. Only a few years after the famine, there's, there's Newman founding a university, a Catholic university in this country. You know, it's back we've gone in some ways. We don't think we're on the shoulders of giants, these people. Cardinal Paul Cullen, John McHale, Newman. They probably couldn't stand each other. But these were remarkable people. They were learned and holy and tremendously determined to spread the faith. I think of McHale uh, bringing in the Franciscan brothers of the Archdiocese of Tume into Tume, which was a Franciscan foundation to provide primary education because he didn't trust the government primary schools. Though he may well have been wrong in that in retrospect, but he wasn't wrong about it in terms of what's happening in the modern uh, educational scene. We've stopped being crazy about education. I remember at a, at a conference, at an educational conference, one principal up the country, we were having a drink after the talks and he, he stood there at the bar 
uh, with his hands in his pockets, jingling his change and musing. Yeah, he, was, he was a plain-spoken man from the Midlands. And if you know Ireland, if you're not Irish listening to this, uh, the Midlands, good land, you know, solid farmers, yeoman farmers, they're, they, they don't mess about. He jingled the change and he said, you know, he said, if I had my way, I would only employ nutters to teach. And it was because he had seen, if you've seen these people and the way they can inspire the students, these people who have that divine spark, that enthusiasm, that love for their subject, it's a spiritual quality. And then if that person is a believer, one teacher in our school who wasn't perfect, he's a great guy, but he wasn't perfect. None of us are. He started something like a cult of joining the Legion of Mary in the boarding school that lasted 40 years. You could have the senior captain in the, in the Legion of Mary. The Legion of Mary was a very prestigious thing to be in. I mean, that was one teacher. And that was his drive and enthusiasm and commitment and intelligence and faith. He was a man of great faith. Now, he wasn't perfect. He had his faults. This is all to play for. So I'm making a few pleas here. I'm pleading to teachers, to Catholic teachers, to have courage and to rediscover their vocation as spiritual leaders. Teachers in every sense. Descendants and, and participators in the mission of the great teachers, Jesus Christ. But I'm pleading as well for a new approach in the church to education that puts a primacy on personnel rather than on facilities. It's nutters who will save the Irish church. We will be saved by crazy people. We will be saved by bright, well-read, eccentric, obsessed, intellectually ferociously curious, informed, inspirational teachers. That's what will do it. We're probably not going to be able to operate Catholic schools into the future, given the way things are going. That's just a personal opinion. That's not dogma. So hang me for my opinion if you want. But I, I don't see it. But we should be producing wandering hedge school teachers. I've said this before. It's worth it to the church to foster and hire these people and just send them out to cause trouble. There are a thousand ways a parish can set up. We're going to be having to set up classes in the evenings. We're going to have to run Sunday school. We're going to have to do all this stuff. And we are going to need exceptional teachers to do this. And it will be well worth paying them what they're worth to do it. And I've called for this before and I'm calling for it again here for, as I talk about this incredible profession that in Catholic terms goes back at least to the great Benedict. It goes back to our Lord Jesus Christ. It goes straight back to our Lord Jesus Christ because the disciples comes from the Latin uh, and originated from the Greek, discipuli, meaning students. They were his students. Our bishops are, get their authority from being descended in an unbroken spiritual line from the first students of the great teacher Jesus Christ. And before that, from the Greeks. And the Greeks played an enormous part in the original emergence of the faith from the, the Jewish people. And the Jewish people were already actually heavily Hellenized. And so, what are we saying here today? If you are bright, you don't have to be a genius, but bright. If you're a lively lad, if you're an impressive young woman, and if you think you have this, I would plead with you to put aside a brilliant career in business where you could make a stack of money. I would plead with you to consider putting aside a gifted career in the law or in communications because the skills involved in this field are eminently transferable. 
I would plead with you to adopt what his Edward Gibbon, the historian, he was talking about soldiers, what he called an honourable poverty. You're not going to make your fortune in teaching. Government salary is a great salary in a recession, not such a good salary in a boom, and to dedicate your life to teaching. If you stick with it, I tell you, I promise you, I swear to you, you'll never regret it if you stick with it. And that means a lifetime of study as well as a lifetime of teaching, a lifetime of learning as well as a lifetime of demonstrating. That means you begin again and again and again as you become the living rule, as you become a star by which the boys or girls in your class will chart their lives for years afterwards, chart their voyage. What an amazing life. You may be a parent yourself or like some teachers, I've known teachers who simply forgot to marry. They became so absorbed in it. Unbelievable stuff. They just adopted everyone's kids and they raised whole generations. And in Kipling's words, became famous men and women because they never got into the papers, but they were known to generation upon generation upon generation. So I would say that's the way you should be thinking in terms of the teaching profession. Now, I particularly just want to look in the time that's left to us in this podcast. I particularly want to look at the question of religion teaching, because to be quite honest, what's going on, I suspect in most Catholic schools is a disaster. I know this anecdotally. I know it by reliable report and I know it from experience. If you're running a Catholic school and I'm accusing myself in this as much as anyone who's who's now running a school, the biggest temptation you'll have will be, again, you're obsessed with you're trying to please the parents, you're, you become obsessed with the points, with the league tables, with all the rest, and religion goes into a disadvantageous place on the timetable. It gets the last class on Friday, so to speak, and uh, it doesn't get well looked after. There is no point in trying to remedy that by strong-arming schools into doing differently with the timetable, because if you don't have, and this is crucial, the teachers to make it happen, there's very little point in taking quality time for the classes on the timetable if there's nothing happening in the class. And people are being put teaching religion who have no degrees in theology. Well, that's fair enough. I taught home economics at one stage. wasn't much good at it, but I taught it. I taught English and I wasn't bad at it. And my degree was in history. That's being done less and less now. They don't like it. They disapprove of it. But they used to say you'd never teach better in the end, eventually than that class, that, that subject you had picked up, in which for the first year or two you just managed to stay a page ahead of them. So that was the best class, that was the best subject you'd ever teach. That's not the end of the world, but it's a huge problem that teachers are teaching religion who have no interest in it. And I think it's absolutely indefensible that teachers in some schools are actually putting kids doing their homework for religion class. I think that a t- teacher who does that really should be disciplined. I don't see any problem with letting them use a religion class just before the exams for a quick bit of revision or something like that. You might do that with any class. But it's a big problem with religion. It's just becoming a class in which you can get rid of some of your homework. You can do your other subjects. So you might say to me, well, here's a problem. What if you're a teacher in a Catholic school in the present system who has no faith, but has goodwill and is bright and lively and is an excellent teacher in every other respect? I would say there's no excuse for not making the most of that situation. And what you do there is you go into your class You tell them straight out you're not a person of faith. Don't play games and don't lie. Tell them straight out, look, I'm not a person of faith, but I find this whole area very interesting. I want to do the right thing by the school and by you. 
And what I would like to do this year is explore faith. So I thought that I would teach a class on introduction to philosophy and we'll go from there. Now, I would say that that would be a sterling contribution to the life of the school and the lives of your students, because philosophy is not as yet a, a timetabled or examined subject in Ireland, not to my knowledge anyway, although it is on the continent, maybe in England too, I don't know. I think that would be a tremendous contribution. But this business of doing nothing in religion class is an absolute disaster. And it's a terrible example for a teacher to give because the students aren't stupid and they know you're being paid. Okay, so you are scandalising them. You know, now none of us were perfect. There are no perfect teachers except for our Lord. None of us were perfect, but there are limits. Please don't do what I'm talking about. I'm hearing of this more and more. Let's do your own homework. And then another great recourse, they go into religion class and, oh, well, we'll, we'll do something on drugs. We'll do something on, on, on social problems. So you teach a class on drugs. But do you, in the class, investigate why people take drugs? Have you the courage to discuss with the children, for example, this nonsense or you hear about smoking as well? Oh, well, it's not glamorous. That's a load of rubbish. Smoking kills you. Anything that kills you is glamorous. You talk to teenagers like that and they, they know you're a waffler. They know you haven't thought this out. They'll just dismiss you as boring and predictable. And they're right to dismiss you as boring and predictable because you are boring and you are predictable. And you're being lazy and you're gifted and bright and you're sharp. Come off it. Oh, taking drugs isn't cool. Of course taking drugs is cool. It's extremely dangerous. It's illegal. It's mind-altering. What do you think cool is? Cool always involves, it's liminal, it always involves the edge. If there's no edge, there's no cool. That's why alcohol is cool and Sidona isn't. Not a bad drink, Sidona. Alcohol is cool because the edge is in alcohol. It's dangerous. Alcohol isn't particularly palatable on your first try. I found wine disgusting the first time I tasted it. It's an acquired taste. If you're going to go in there and say, well, I don't have faith, I'll, I'll teach them about drugs, fine. Go in and teach them why people take drugs. They don't just take drugs because they're poor. The poor can't afford them. They don't take drugs because they're poor. Some of the biggest users of cocaine are highly successful and highly paid executives. They take drugs because they make them feel better, because they give them a trip. They take drugs because human beings yearn for ecstasy, because for the same reason they indulge in sex, for the same reason they do all these things, because we want to be like God. Go back to the Greeks. If you won't trust the church, go back to the Greeks. We want to fly close to the sun. They want to be like gods. Human beings seek happiness, they seek bliss, they seek joy. And so they take drugs and they get scuttered. They go out to get drunk. Well, why can't you go out and just have, you know, two drinks? Because that's sensible. And 15 pints is interesting. You come back at me, which is fair enough, and you'll say, my God, it's no wonder the church is the way it is with priests like you. I sat down to listen to this and I got my, my teenage son to sit with me. I tied him to the chair to make him listen to this podcast by a priest because I said it would do him some good and here you are telling him to go out and drug up. I'm not telling them any such thing. I'm suggesting you don't start talking about drugs to your kids by telling lies. And they're not even good lies or entertaining lies. They're stupid and they're predictable. And they're boring. And for a teenager, the last one is the most unforgivable. Drugs are interesting. And all, you know, sex is nothing compared to love. Yeah, well, to paraphrase Woody Allen, it'll do until love gets there. I mean, you start that. Come on, you're a loser, don't... The church was all our faults. The church has never gone on like that. It has always acknowledged the dark, tremendous attraction 
of the abuse of sexuality, of uncommitted sexuality. Nothing will be gained if we don't start with the truth. The Catholic teacher teaches truth. This is where I hear Catholics giving out, oh no, why don't we have Catholic journalists who'll, who'll always say good things about the church? The last thing we need are Catholic journalists who always say good things about the church. We need Catholic journalists who tell the truth. That's what we need. That's all a Catholic journalist can be bound to. He might have a bad story on the Pope. There's nothing we can do about it. He has it. Catholic journalists should be a terrifying character. Precisely because he or she will tell the truth. And which of us can stand up in the face of that? We all make stupid mistakes. We're all hypocritical in some way or other. Oh, come on. No, no, no. The teacher, the Catholic teacher facing students in religion class goes in and doesn't pretend to be somebody they're not. That is the great teacher. It's the teacher from which the students will learn. And you start with the truth. I've heard of, you know that fantastic order, the home of the mother? I've heard them talk about going into schools where in one case, I think it was the nuns that were telling me this, they were forbidden to use the word sin or talk about sin. So for God's sake, how can you appreciate human genius, brilliance and greatness unless you put in the darkness? It's a constitutive part of any painting. In the Italian term, chiaroscuro, it's absolutely essential to our criticism. Play of light and shade, chiaro ed oscuro, of light and darkness. You can't understand human nature, you can't understand life unless you allow for the darkness. You don't talk about sins, you're setting them up, you're setting the students up. You're a bad teacher, you're a liar, even with the best of intentions. You're, going, you're setting your students up, you're leaving them with no immunity to the terrible moral diseases that are out there. They'll be helpless in front of the infections that exist in, in, in the moral world if you don't teach to tell them about sin. And so that monk who so bravely said, we prepare our students for death. Oh, to have courage to talk like that. What a magnificent thing to say. I mean, if a teacher had come into our class and said that to us, by crikey, we'd have sat up. This guy's interesting. He's probably a nutter, but he's interesting. And that's what you want. God preserve us. Let me tell you a story that might somehow get across because I, I'm doing my best with this, but it's an enormous topic. And I suppose one of the problems that I feel so passionately about it, I'm tumbling over myself trying to make the point. I just feel it is absolutely crucial that we recruit extraordinary people to become Catholic teachers. Extraordinary people. I remember a conversation years ago between a number of us priests. We were having a drink, I'm sorry to say. God forgive us. And we were chatting. And at the time, we had a boarding school. And boarding schools are hard work. The work that goes into a boarding school, because you are truly in loco parentis. So they give you all the crap that they're giving their parents at home, except hundreds of them are doing it at the same time, unloading on you. And one of the priests who knew the school well, a very distinguished past pupil, very distinguished academically and sporting, he asked uh, one of the priests who was there, how are things going in the, in the school? My contemporary answered him, oh, very well, very well at the moment. He said, we're really getting the right kind of guy at the moment. We've, we just have this fantastic seam we're mining of, of great, solid guys. And the other priest, the older priest, who was a, a writer and a thinker, he put down his pint and he said, safe, solid, sound men build safe, solid, sound 
suicidal societies. And then he picked up his pint and went on drinking. My acquaintance was outraged. He was absolutely hopping because the work that goes into a boarding school, you prize these sound men, these solid men who can be counted on in every respect, whereas the erratic ones drive you crazy. Can you imagine a boarding school full of erratic geniuses? You, you would run yourself ragged. It's like a basket of pups. But imagine a basket of Labrador pups like you couldn't manage them. But the other guy understood Catholic religion. And he saw the danger we were getting into. I, I remember the Australian writer Patrick White had this epiphany, or a, a rather retro, what is it, a counter epiphany, if you like, a pseudo epiphany, on the train was it coming out of Melbourne, where he looked at all the identical little white houses with their white picket fences and their little English gardens front and back. And poet, writer, and White, of course, was Australian aristocracy. He came from a, an old squatter family, squatocracy as they call them, you know, the very wealthy farming family. And uh, he had this patrician disdain for the lower middle class estates with their, with their endless white picket fences. And, but you can see his point. It was that terror of the safe and the sound because it doesn't nourish and it doesn't feed enough. And so you end up with the suicide rates in these safe, solid, sound societies. Ireland in the past was poor, if you believe some people have been knighted, priest-ridden and all the rest of it, but it had nothing like the suicide rate we have now. And so, we need teachers for that time. We need teachers who truly understand the human condition. I know it sounds like I'm asking the impossible, but I have seen it and it's not impossible. But we just have to recruit the right people into the teaching profession. And part of the problem is that, as I said, those talents are transferable. And you have, to, you have to wean them away from much more profitable enterprises and get them into teaching where they can awaken in the students all their gifts and equip them for slaying dragons on the road in the real adventure that is life. Do you know that old saying? Give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish. You feed them for a lifetime. Sure, keeping students safe in school, that's no use if you haven't equipped them to keep themselves safe for the rest of their lives. And that means having the instinct of a warrior and a hunter. It means it's ultimately spiritual. You send them out at night on horseback. You don't send them out without the, without the lance, without the armour and without the horse. You're keeping them safe for six years and sending them out a defenceless beggar on the road of life. No, 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 no. We have to recruit teachers who are worthy heirs to Jesus Christ. We have to recruit teachers who are not afraid of being crucified, who are not afraid of Gethsemane, not afraid of Golgotha. We have to recruit true spiritual leaders. We have to recruit teachers who can go from reading Rolling Stone magazine and, and, and you name it, and can go in into the oratory and pursue a deep and profound spiritual life in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And they are there. And the Americans, as usual, are ahead of us on this. And they are ahead of us on this. Uh, great teachers in the past, I said the Christian brothers, but I mean the Jesuits were superb teachers. The Dominicans, fantastic teachers. In Jarlitz, uh, the, the school acquired at one stage, this is oh, a century ago, it acquired a name for Greek. Two or three priests in a row who were gifted at classics and excellent teachers. I mean, it acquired a fantastic reputation in football. Again, it was, it was priests and masters who were into football. This is what we need. I'm going to say it, and I hear I'm going to finish. I'll shut up, I promise. We need a rabbinate. We need a teacherate. We need 
to be thinking of teaching as a vocation. We're talking about these ecclesial movements, Opus Dei, Comunione Liberazione, uh, Neocatechumenate, all these, all these movements. Where is the ecclesial movement which is obsessively, fanatically, daftly obsessed with teaching? That's what has to come out. It's just a crowd of lay people who are absolute geniuses. So I say just a crowd of lay people who are absolute geniuses. I don't ask for much. I'm very reasonable. And let's, let's finish with Kipling, who wasn't remotely reasonable. Bless and praise we famous men, men of little showing, for their work continueth and their work continueth, broad and deep continueth, great beyond their knowing. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.